Hello, I'm Dave Benarski, and this is the Scooter Cannonball Podcast. Today we have Bob Monday, Big Cart, winner of the 2016 Scooter Cannonball. The 2016 Scooter Cannonball started in Fernandia Beach, Florida, and ended 11 days later in Washington State. It was around 3,700 miles over 11 days. It was the only 11-day cannonball, and Bob finished first place, 56 points, maybe one hour ahead of Walt Driggers, Fly Guy. Bob is riding a 1986 Honda Helix. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you. I've enjoyed the episode I've listened to. So, Bob, the usual two questions for all the guests. Tell us about yourself on two feet and then your background on power sports and all things riding and what led you to the Scooter Cannonball. All right. Well, I'm a retired computer guy, and I think the first bike I got was when I was 14 years old, and it was literally in a basket. It was a, it was a little Sears moped. So I put that thing together and rode it around over the farm and all that kind of stuff. My dad was a mechanic by trade, so we had tools and space and all the things, and I could use his knowledge occasionally, but mostly he just left me alone, and I figured things out on my own, and but didn't go that route for employment, went, went the computer route, and after a, a very enjoyable career, one of my boys, I've got six sons, one of my boys had run across Scooter Cannonball probably about 2010, and he said, this looks crazy, we ought to do it. But of course, being a young guy, he didn't have time between college and family and things like that. And so as I was coming up to retirement within actually just a very short time of retirement, I had a bunch of hotel points from traveling all over the country. I said, you know what, I could do this and it wouldn't cost me a lot of money. And it sounds like a lot of fun and pretty crazy. And so I talked to a friend of mine who was a union electrician and he happened to be working in Orlando at Disney World at the time. He said, well, I'll just go over to Jacksonville, meet you there, and drive your support truck all, all across the country. So uh, that sounded <laughs> nice like friend. a good deal. And especially if I was paying for his food and his lodging and everything, he was more than willing to go. <laughs> he didn't think about the union wages he gave up on that trip. It cost him more than it did me, I'm sure. <laughs> so I found a scooter. Uh, I didn't have a scooter at the time. Certainly not one that would do this. I've had... I think at, at that time, I'd had about 17 bikes over my life of all different kinds. So I found this scooter that had only 20, 2,400 miles on it, kind of in north central Indiana. And I was worried that the gas tank would be full of crud, that it was clean as a pin, and the scooter ran well, and other than you know tires that were all cracked and stuff like that. I bought the thing and drug it home and began preparing it to, to ride the cannonball. Wow. So you rode a 30-year-old scooter that had about 2,400 miles on it, and you picked that up in Florida? I picked that up in north central Indiana. North central Indiana. Okay. Nice. And shipped it, or did you ride to the start in 2016, or did you ship both ways? Because I was going to have a support truck, I just went ahead and bought a scooter rail and put it on the back of it. It was a little 2010 Ford Escape, and of course, that's a very short wheelbase. So you put a 350-pound scooter on the back of that thing, sticking out a little bit from the the tailgate and it made the front end pretty light so i wanted to wander around over the road a little bit it was it was a little bit sketchy to drive it with that scooter on the back so when uh, my buddy Dwayne and i were together i did most of the driving but he drove it then you know as a support vehicle day to day once we got down there were you looking for a honda helix or was that the scooter that you found and met the criteria for the good solid cannonball scooter because the honda helix is a very proven machine in this in this event well, a lot of people had ridden helixes, but none of them had ever finished well. So it was what I was looking for just because everything I read about it said, you know, the motor is just bulletproof. It's way understressed. You know, you can ride it all day long. I was talking with Mike Smith, who was the Honda Helix guru when it comes to Scooter Cannonball. And he had 140,000 miles on his. And he said, you know, you, you can ride these things forever at 60 miles an hour. And I said, well, what if I want to run 70 or 75 miles an hour? Will it, will it go 3,700 miles? And he thought for a minute and goes, yeah. Yeah. So, so I decided I'd pick the right scooter. Uh, that sounds it, like Mike. It was trouble-free, but, but we got there. So I'm not closely familiar with your 2016 Cannonball run. I dropped out the day before due to a broken foot. That's the only one I've set out since 2008. But how was 2016 for you? It really was a perfect run for a guy who's never done it before because nearly all of it was pavement. There was only a little bit of gravel and a few, 
was, uh, what was it? The, was it the first day? I think it was the first day. There was one section that apparently when the route had been determined, looked like a very rudimentary road, but it actually turned out to be a path across the field that had a locked gate, maybe at a gun range or something. I don't know if you remember that story. But a lot of people that were actually riding the route instructions ended up in a bunch of weeds and had to turn around and go back out. But I was using Google Maps, so I just would route myself from checkpoint to checkpoint. This was back before Google Maps on a phone would allow you to have waypoints. So you could only have one one destination. And so at each destination, then I would pick up the next one and I would go from there. But yeah, I looked for the Honda Helix because I just thought it was a good, solid machine. I couldn't believe I found one with 2,400 miles on it. And it was already almost 30 years old. So it was just pristine, you know, changing the oil and making sure that the the rubber, you know, intake boot and stuff like that, I think I swapped it out. And anything that was rubber, you know, I pretty much went over. Yeah. So you showed up with a bike that was... In, in good condition, all the consumables replaced. Given its age and the time it may have sat, there's some additional attention to the rubber and, and areas that may have some rot. But other than that, no aftermarket stuff, modifications. Did you have a plumbed gas tank or were you doing a jerry can or just planned or unplanned fuel stops? Yeah, that that was my secret sauce there. That was the secret modification is <laughs> because I've got a little camper with a generator in it. I had a nine gallon boat gas tank. God. And so I bought a Chinese rack and I mounted that on the back and had to beef it up because nine gallons of gas flopping around on the back was more than that Chinese rack was designed to handle. And so I put that on there because I thought, you know, the big deal here is that you're going to run out of gas at some point every day. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to stop for gas. There's no way you're going to stop for gas and it not take at least five minutes. And, you know, the temptation will be to get you a soda and then you're going to have to stop for something else later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my plan was to get it on the road, keep it on the road and keep that throttle pinned. Now, actually, my, my original plan was. I don't want to run out of gas in the middle of nowhere. And there's not a good way to carry gas on most scooters. And so, hence the gas tank. But I did not plan to be competitive. You know, there were a lot of people who had done this a lot of times, and I figured they had things figured out, including catheters and all the things that had been rumored in years past. Whether or not true or not, I I don't know. (laughs) But I didn't want to run out of gas. And so I put that on there, but then I I realized very quickly that it just took too much time to stop for gas. And so, you know, surprisingly, at the end of the first day, I was I was way up high in the score. And that surprised me to the point I was like, you know what, with a little bit of effort, because I made several mistakes that first day, some of which mortified me. And I thought, you know, if I put a little bit of effort into driving, I can be competitive. I can be real competitive. And it worked out. Yeah. I mean, you, you had some stiff competition that year. I'm just looking at the top five yourself, Walt Flyguy, who's, you know, a hell of a navigator, rider, very good S-Max. with the, yeah, on, on an S Max. You had Bill Luthold, who yep. damn near won 2014, just had a little bit of misfortune on that last, you know, the last day or second to last day, and on a very, very fast bike. And he's an excellent navigator and he checks all the boxes. Classic rider was on a, a 1974 Rally 200, so he had an age advantage over you and a handicap, an overall handicap advantage on you. And Moto Vista, also from 2014, Scooter Parts Co. So he's he's known to be riding a you know a kitted modern scooter, and he's he's again a fantastic rider, and he came in fifth place overall. But it looks like just going across the scores. The five of you were every day battling over the, you know, the top three podium spots all the way to the end. I mean, it, it's it's close. So did you know kind of going into the ninth, tenth or eleventh day that you were going to walk away with it or? Nothing. Now, if you look at the days that I won, several of them were later in the event. And the one you left out, of course, is Gonzo, Absurd Ruse, yep. who had that, what was it, 1958 or something, Frankenstein scooter. Yep. And he was absolutely killer on that thing. But the thing, it, it broke down on him. And he was doing roadside repairs, including splitting the case. If he had been able to keep that thing together, nobody could have caught him. Between the factor and between his riding skills and the speed, he was an absolute 
guaranteed win. Yeah. But I think the issue there was that he didn't put oil in the fuel. I don't know if it had a separate tank or what it was, probably oil in the fuel at that time. But anyway, that's what cooked his cylinder. And it was night and it was raining and it was ugly. And, and so he lost several days. But when he was running, especially like that first day, I mean, he just killed us. My score was like 286 points or something. His was like 371. It wasn't close. And so if, if he'd been able to keep it together, he'd have had that, that year for sure. Yeah. That is the the challenge with any modified scooter, vintage or modern, but especially with the vintage and the extent of the modifications he did. But he was able to post scores, I think, on six or seven of the 11 days and not riding the other four, you know, still had a points wise. He came in overall came in 15th place. Right. Which, again, it just doesn't show his capability because of all those zeros. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't look to see if he'd ridden in 2018 or... I don't believe he rode in 2018 or, or certainly 2021. I know he intended to, but I don't I don't think he posted scores in those years. Yeah. You, of course, the whole event was just a lot of fun. The Soldiers of Destiny were making that movie, and they were a bunch of crazy, goofy guys with uh, the crazy challenges that they had set up for each other. It was so much fun to watch them and the movie courses out there. It's actually available on like Roku or something now. Yeah, it's on a few things, Amazon, Amazon Prime and a few different platforms, yeah. And it was focused on them, you know, their group and what they were doing and it was still a lot of fun though. You know, the storyline was a little bit dramatic, you know, if, if you were there, <laughs> going, oh, I didn't remember all that, but in the movie, you know, you got to maintain interest and so it was a lot of fun to watch the movie. Yeah, the event is is kind of happening while they're doing the the movie if you haven't seen it or if you have seen it but in real life they were actively a part of the event i'm assuming like in the parking lot and everything else you guys were there there was a crossover between their ride which was taking place during the event and and they were doing the event they were going to the checkpoints and everything but it just wasn't the, the highlight or really the focus of the documentary that they put together but it sounds like you guys were very much traveling together even though the the movie and documentary doesn't portray that well yeah they would have to get started real early every morning because they were riding mostly zuma 125s yeah and so you know i i would get started maybe seven o'clock or something like that and maybe by nine or ten o'clock i'd fly by them at 70 miles an hour <laughs> you know, honking and waving and out in that passing lane on the yellow line you know and they'd be doing the same you know but they had a camera truck and and they stopped and did a lot of you know, drone video. And again, that was back before drones were as good as they are now. So I guess they nearly lost the drone in the Mississippi River as they went over the bridge at Cairo. Beautiful footage, but it was so far away. It was like, what direction is it going? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that bridge. That was the day you guys really hit some tornadoes and serious weather, the rain. Did you dodge it just by luck or were you out there what is a what is a dog trying to get through it and make your way into I believe Cape Girardeau was your finish that day? Yeah, I think it was Jackson, which is a little Jackson, south. I'm sorry, yep. very very close. Yeah, the land between the lakes when we went over uh, through Kentucky, the skies were getting dark, and I could see up ahead that it was getting dark. And of course, I had a rain suit and stuff, and I I stopped and to put on the pants of a rain suit, you know, you've got suspenders and all that, and it was just going to be a big hassle. So I just put on the jacket. And I was using my phone for GPS, and my phone at that time was not waterproof. It, it just they didn't have that technology yet. And I was using a Senna camera communicator set up, and I was afraid that it was going to get wet because I had power going into the bottom of it. It would only run like an hour and a half or something on its own batteries. And so I was almost without instruction at that point because I had to put all the electronics away. So I put on my rain jacket and started into that, and I have never been in harder rain than that was. And I guess there were tornadoes and stuff through there. A lot of people stopped at restaurants and lost a lot of time. I was too silly and didn't stop, got lost instead. And so I'm like running around and the water is hitting my jacket over the top of the windshield and just running down and puddling in the seat. And trust me, everything got pruny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people make the joke about the Helix being a you know a rolling lazy boy. It sounds like you would have had a lake in your lap. 
I did. It's a wonderful seat. I've had cruisers and all kinds of things, and I've never had anything with a seat as comfortable as that Helix. Uh, it really is amazing. I see people talking about, especially the S-Max and so on, recutting seats, and that Helix is so comfortable. You can put on all the miles, and, and at the end of the day, you just don't feel it at all. But yeah, we had we had a lot of rain. I'm I'm going down through there, and I'm I'm lost. And I see Cheryl Wise, CD Wise, going the other direction. I was like, well, <laughs> is she lost too? And so I couldn't be any more lost, so I just turned around. Well, she's she's got a Sport City 250, which is an 85-mile-an-hour scooter, you know. Yeah. And so she quickly lost me, but at that point, I kind of got back on track, and I got out of the storm a little bit. And I had learned the first day, after forgetting to turn my GPS on at all, when I left the starting line, that when you get out in the country, you can't necessarily pick up the next destination on your cell phone. You better have them programmed in and you better have the maps downloaded. And so I learned that at the very first checkpoint. As I'm standing there taking pictures of the bike and the field and me and all this kind of stuff, and Bill Luthold goes flying by with his camera on an outstretched arm, flashed and doesn't even slow down. And That's that was when I realized, okay, I, I don't have the ability to get a signal. And so I followed, I don't remember if it was him or the next rider by who had on a, a bright day glow yellow rain jacket. And I could see him just far enough ahead of me to know where I was going. And I followed him into town and there I was able to get a signal and learned the first thing about navigation. And that is plan ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even today, I mean, cell phone every year, the, the tower coverage improves. But if you're going to go exclusively with Google Maps or Apple Maps, whatever your map program is on your phone, do some riding at home with your data and cell turned off to or turn it off mid-ride kind of simulate that because it as you said can really change things on you quickly and you can find yourself lost yeah well and i tried to use the paper maps whenever i or the instruction route sheet mm -hmm. whenever i didn't have gps and again found out that you know a lot of that that year was based on street names and you don't know what the street name is. It may have a number or something, but, you know, there's not always road signs and stuff. And so I learned that was a fail as well, especially we had a, a bridge that was under construction over a river somewhere. And the next turn was right after that bridge. And so we couldn't stop on the bridge to take a picture or anything. We had to do kind of a flyby and do the best we could with the picture. But then, you know, I had to find a place to pull over while I passed my next turn because it was literally, you know, 50 yards past the bridge. And so now I'm trying to find that road and I don't know where I am and I've got no signal. So, you know, my, my first day was just not all that, or second day, I guess it was, was not all that great. But that was when someone suggested that I write the route instructions on a grease pencil inside the window. <laughs> so that was the next important thing was I'd write down how many miles to the next turn. And other than the fact that my trip odometer was not in sync with GPS, worked pretty well. So I had to allow about a 10% correction factor that I just had to do in my head and say, okay, well, if this says, you know, 53 miles, then I'm going to have to go, you know, this far instead. But that was also key to staying on route is having alternative. Of course, grease pencil doesn't wash off if it rains or anything like that. The fact that it was on the inside of the windshield so that I could read it, you know, from my direction worked out really, really well. In 2016 was the last year that the event published paper turn-by-turn -turn navigation. We stopped doing that in 18 for, you know, a few reasons, just the time to compile them and, and just accuracy between when they're written and, and when they go to print for the writer booklet. Mm -hmm. uh, but why no GPS for you? Is that just a, like a, by GPS, I mean like a Garmin, maybe a TomTom -tom back then. Was this a part of your build your own adventure or just? I didn't really, I had a GPS, but it wasn't a, a good GPS. It was an old Magellan. And I thought, you know, I've got maps on my phone, you know, that'll, that'll work out just fine. And so I, I just went that route. The, the nice thing about it was it allowed for unexpected road closures, flooded bridges, bridges out. And when we got into Lebanon, Tennessee, because of all that rain, uh, that was at the end of, of that rainy day, a lot of folks, running GPSs had already programmed the route in and, and they'd done so 
you know, weeks, months before. And so Cheryl Wise said that she ran into, you know, a bridge that was out and there was no way to get across it. So now she had to figure out how to get around it and continue on a route where she would pick it back up again and things like that. Well, my, you know, real time map making capability took me around it. I, I didn't end up with any road closures. I ended up with a little bit of water to ride through, but it was only up to, you know, the, a little over the, the top of the, not quite up to the floorboards, go that route. Because, you know, scooters have their air cleaners and stuff down really low. So I just kind of went through that slow, and that was the worst it got as far as being in the wrong place at the wrong time. By using the phone at that point, really the luxury of uh, a Google Maps, which they had acquired ways at that point. I don't know if the traffic data, I can't really remember if the traffic data was kind of real time merged into Google Maps or if there was some over overlay there. No, they had acquired it, but they hadn't really integrated it yet. And I didn't use Waze because of the battery demand. And, you know, the old phones would not charge that fast off of one amp or whatever charger they had. So I didn't I didn't use that. I just used Google Maps. Yeah. If you had ways, would you have possibly been able to avoid the police? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been better. That was How did that happen? <laughs> and how did it end? <laughs> so we left it, that was a Sunday and the destination was Valentine, Nebraska. And so my friend and I went to church that morning. There's about six people in the basement of a house, you know, but we, we found the place and, and went to church. So we were very late and leaving. It was like noonish whenever we left town. But, you, you know, as you know, you can leave whenever you want. You just take a picture of when you leave. And so we weren't behind or anything like that. So we were going hard, as we always do. And as I got into Valentine, Nebraska, the speed limit on the road we were coming in on was 65. And lo and behold, behind a signboard, you know, one of these flashing yellow signs that says, you know, move over, whatever, it's an arrow board, was a state cop. And so I knew he got me. I mean, as, as soon as I approached and saw him, he flipped on his lights and I was like, oh no, and I'm just coming into Valentine. So it's like, well, maybe I can get to the hotel before he pulls me over. And so I'm going along making sure, you know, 45 miles an hour, 35 miles an hour. And I turn my turn signal on so that he knows that I see him and all that. And I'm almost to the hotel. I'm like 800 feet from the hotel and he hits the siren. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite in the parking lot to get that final check-in photo. It wasn't. And nope. so I pull over. <laughs> and I pull over right in front of a restaurant that is almost next door to the hotel. And, of course, everybody is eating in that restaurant, and they see me get pulled over. And it looks like ants coming out of an anthill. <laughs> <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> Especially with all of the Helix guys, you know, Chris Smith, Mike Smith, Frank Esposito. And they're all, you know, talking to Officer Burns and trying to get him to confiscate my scooter. And, you know, I, I surely shouldn't be out driving it this way. And, and so he's kind of laughing. He doesn't know what's going on. He sees all these scooters around and he, he asked me, he says, what's, what's going on with all this? Well, I had learned from Cheryl Wise, who got pulled over a couple of days before. And I saw her. I passed her as she had gotten pulled over. So razzed her about that later. But she said, yeah, I just told him that this was a, a cross-country scooter rally for charity and talked her way out of it. So it's like, ah, the memory cells come to life and I tell him the same thing. <laughs> and so all these guys, the Zuma guys are going by and, and they're all dressed up in cow suits and everything else, you know. And so he's laughing and he says, I didn't know scooters would go this fast. And I said, well, how fast did you get me? And he said, I'm not saying. Oh. And I, I said, I don't. I don't. I said, I don't know that I knew they would go that fast either. How fast did you get me? And he says, well, I'm not saying. And of course, he didn't want to go back to the, the precinct and say, I got a scooter running 80 miles an hour. And they would laugh him out the door, you know. So so he ends up giving me a warning ticket. And, and with all these guys, you know, especially Frank, he's walking by with a cell phone camera taking video. And I told Officer Burns, I said, you know what? I said, you're going to make me famous tonight. Mm hmm Frank with his tattoos on his hands that says crime pays. <laughs> <laughs> He's hilarious. He's wonderful. So I was famous on Facebook that night and he gave me a warning and it didn't have the speed written on it. And I asked him, I said, do you care if I walk down to the hotel and take a picture and I'll be right back? 
He said, no, I think you need to stay here. And I said, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be glad to do that. So it cost me eight minutes is what it cost me, but uh, that wasn't too bad. That's nah, not bad at all. Eight minutes and you got a souvenir and a good story. Oh, I, I love that picture. That's wonderful. So 2023, do you think you have another one Another one in you? You know, I, I don't because my psychology would say you've got to do it again. You've got to repeat to show that this wasn't a fluke. And I just don't want to do that. The only way I would do it is if one of my sons said, hey, let's do it and took the time off. We, we still ride scooters. We've got a, a trip planned down to Eureka Springs, Arkansas to ride. We go down to the Smokies, have gone down there almost every year for several years, Tale of the Dragon and Shareholder Skyway and a lot of the roads that we rode when we were down there. But the day that I broke down, I, I blew a belt just outside of Lebanon. Tennessee. It was a brand new belt too. It just didn't actually fit the Honda. It didn't have the same angles on the, the belt, I found out later. But when I blew that stage, and I didn't know at that time, I could go back, take a picture of the hotel and start over because that was still the first stage. I rode to the first checkpoint leisurely, and I just really enjoyed it. I knew that I was going to get half the points because that was the rules that year. And it was just a lot of fun, you know, to just ride leisurely and look around and just not be pushing it. You know, when you're going into a corner and the speed limit on the corner, you know, the recommended speed limit says 45 and you say, oh, OK, I can add 50 percent to that. And so you're doing, you know, 60, 65 and you're trusting that there's no gravel on the exit of the corner. And, you know, it's just you're risking things. And every night I would delete all the video that would distress my relatives if I were to get killed doing this, because that was a possibility. We were doing stuff we shouldn't have been doing. We got stopped by a painting crew that were painting the yellow lines down the middle of the road. And again, Cheryl Wise and I were, were right together, just happened to be. And so we're both stuck in this and we're going, you know, five or 10 miles an hour, literally watching paint dry. And so finally they pull off and they let us go by. And of course she just disappears because she had a fast scooter. And so I'm behind a motorhome and I just don't quite have enough to pass that motorhome. But he slows down going up a hill and I whip out beside him on a double yellow line, not knowing what's coming over a hill. And I'm hunched down over the scooter, but it had a windshield, so it doesn't help a lot. And right as I get to his back bumper, I hear his turbo spool. It's like, oh, no. And so he races me up the hill and I get right by the driver's window and I can't go any faster. And he is he's not giving me an inch. And finally, I think maybe his significant other said, you know, don't kill the guy, Bert. You know, we don't know what his problem is, but he's evidently crazier <laughs> than you. So let him go by. And so they did. And then, you know, I was out of sight down the hill on the other side and, you know, wasn't holding them up at all. But there were just a lot of risky things as I rode with Bill Luthold one day and saw how fast you have to ride, how hard you have to ride, what you have to do if you're going to be up front. Now, maybe, you know, Scott and his wife have figured out you don't really have to do that if you pick the right scooter. <laughs> but I think you kind of do. There's a lot of things that go on that, that are risking life and limb, just like in the Cannonball movie. And, you know, I'm really surprised that nobody's gotten hurt, but I'm certainly glad of it. Yeah, it's it, you've touched on a lot of good points there. You see it every year in the event. It's almost like you, you lose half your age and people get out there and they have a lot of fun and maybe rideways that they wouldn't ride at home on a Sunday afternoon, solo or in a group and take a lot of unnecessary risks, unnecessary at a lot of levels. And, you know, I've, I've done it myself. I've found myself in a similar situation and had to lane split between a, you know, an oncoming semi and the semi I was trying to pass and it's unpleasant and you kind of have to keep yourself in check to finish the event. It's another reason why we added the bonus points coming out of 2016 into 18 and, and 21. And it's adding those has some people look at it and say, well, it keeps you off the freeway. It keeps you off the faster roads. And it does, but also adds another layer of navigation challenge to the event where there's, there are a lot more turns. Well, and you have to decide, you know, is it worth it to drive out here and get these bonus points or am I better off to ignore them and just go 
fast on to the finish line. Yeah. It just throws one more. And by design, it takes those out. We really don't see a lot of people bypassing them because the ones that want to, you know, drive fast down the down the interstate have done the math and realized that it's a close gamble versus staying on on the route and, and collecting the bonus points. Some of the bonus points are priced, or I should say that the point value for them makes an alternate a little bit more interesting or appetizing. <laughs> but people go to it. So when you, when you look at like a Scott Tagger, I mean, the, the Julie and Scott are, are very humble. Scott rode solo in 18, and he's a, a very impressive rider. And I think one of the few riders that we've seen that is very good on paved roads and can ride the you know the hell out of a scooter you know in dirt and gravel and pretty much any you know terrain that's thrown his way but also does very well in the navigation so the 18 and 21 routes with the navigation stuff and then both were very off-road heavy very much favored his his riding style but if you look at his and julie's times and he was on i think he was on a forza or something a larger scooter and she was on the s max it shows the importance of scooter choice because those two, I'm betting, rode together the whole trip. And so she was coming in one, 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 and he's coming in 12, 12, 12. You know, it is scooter selection is important. You know, when you go bigger motors, you take a big hit. When you go newer scooter, you know, fuel injection, you know, okay, yeah, you, you improve reliability and all that, but you take a big hit. And that's why when I was looking for my Helix, a 1986 was almost as old as you can go. In fact, it may have been the first year for it, I don't recall. And they went up to like 2004. Well, several of my competitors were riding later model Helixes, and they had the same motor I've got. They had virtually the same everything I have. They, they had newer brakes, didn't matter. You know, they had alloy wheels and I had steel wheels, didn't matter. You know, so going older is always better as long as you're not giving up too much. Now that S-Max, you know, that is the machine. You know, I've, I've looked at what well, there's a T-Max and there's a, another one that's in between, but I think it's just under 300 cc, so may not meet the rules. But that S-Max is killer. It is. And there's a, it's no secret at this point, there's a sweet spot in the handicap curve for a scooter that's around, you know, between 150 and 200 cc's. And when you add in liquid cooled and fuel injected 150 cc or 175 or 200 cc scooter, it's going to do really well, just off the shelf handicap and, and scoring. And then you, you know, you, if you add in a, a good rider, one that understands the event, how to how the event scoring works, great with navigation, it should play well with no real significant modification other than to solid riding day after day. Mm -hmm. I've got a carbureted Honda Elite. It's 150 cc sitting in my garage right now, and I look at the handicap on that, and the fact that I can only sustain about between 55 and 60 miles an hour on that on flat ground. And that S-Max at 155, you know, it's going to run at least 75, maybe more, you know, on some downhills. There's just no comparison. There's no way that, you know, that little 150cc Honda can be competitive, you know, even with a gas tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The distance for the last one, 21, gas tanks, unless you're like yourself and you had nine gallons strapped to the back, you had to stop, even with the, most people with a, an auxiliary tank, you had to stop at least one point. As we look ahead to 23, which is kind of similar to 2016, with a, an auxiliary, a plumbed auxiliary fuel tank, you should be able to go nonstop hotel to hotel. And so we should see, I think coming up on 23, a return of the plumbed gas cans or tanks into the the scooter's primary fuel tank as a competitive advantage where it's, it kind of went away a little bit in 18 and 21. Well, in 18, you had so much off-road. The guy who drove my support truck bought a Helix and he didn't end up finishing well because he had not done a lot of riding and, and a lot of other things, but it also had a lot of gravel. I mean, really rough mountainous stuff and it collapsed the rack and that tank ended up being a liability for him because he had the weight and it was flopping around back there and, and it wasn't feeding down into his tank and he really couldn't use it. 
But that was another thing in 2018 that said, you know, this this plumb gas tank is not a good idea was all the off-road stuff. You know, the extra weight on an unstable surface, especially up high, unbaffled. You know, it felt like a six-year-old kid riding behind me back there looking around me saying, are we there yet? And you could feel that gas slosh when I would take off in the morning. I couldn't wait to get that thing drained down into the, the underfloor tank because it was treacherous, you know, on a corner. You had to be aware of it. Oh yeah, on the on the helix, you had it mounted above the. There's like a very ample storage area in the back, so you were you had it high relative to the center of gravity, which is rather low on that scooter, right? I did, and you were gravity fed into the main tank. Yeah, so I had a shut off on it because I didn't want it to overfill, and I just let it gravity down into the other tank. It was ahead of the fuel, or it was yeah ahead of the fuel pump. So that it still was filtered and all that kind of stuff. So did you let it fill throughout the day or were you kind of opening the spigot and letting it top off and then closing it until you wanted a little bit more gas? Yeah, I did the latter. But as the tank got low and due to slosh, it would be prime. And so I had thought about the fact, you know, that guys on boats have that bulb, that primer bulb. And so I plumbed in a primer bulb. So if it lost prime, I could bring it back up. Huh. And so that's, again, something that people need to think about is, you know, am I going to just drain out of the bottom of the tank or does it need prime, which mine needed prime because it went up and out through the the cap and then down into the tank. Gotcha. And so it wasn't going to go up on its own. Now, I could stop and blow into the vent tube or something like that. But again, that's a stop. I don't want to stop. Yeah. Did you have any issues with your auxiliary tank due to heat and expansion, or did that work in your favor given your your plumbing? No, it, it was vented, and so I didn't have any issues with expansion at all. There was one day that I nearly ran out of fuel because I didn't estimate properly, and I got down you know, to the bars on my scooter, and I had never seen it that low before and didn't know that I still had a half a gallon in there when this last bar comes on. But after that, I was a little more cautious. And I, I recognized that, you know, with the, with just driving the scooter around as I was doing my testing beforehand to see what kind of mileage I was getting and, you know, durability and how long, you know, how do I feel at the end of a 400-mile ride and stuff like that. I was getting 70-plus miles to gallon. But when you've got that throttle pinned and you are you keep testing it to see if you can get a little bit more out of it, you know, and you're looking for that sweet spot where maybe, you know, you need to roll off the throttle just a little bit to make it kind of pick up another mile or two an hour. Uh-huh. I was getting 45 miles to the gallon. Yeah. And when you're planning ahead for 70 and you're getting 45, well, you need to replan. Yeah. That's something that comes up so much on the message board with new riders and the misconception of your fuel economy and performance is just whatever you know at home or from your rides and it all goes out the window and not all of it. Some, some part of it is, is, is speed. And the other part is when you get out West or in these open areas, the impact of wind and, and how that impacts it's your fuel, cut it in half. If you're, if you're trying to guess plan for, for fuel, if, if you think you're doing normally 80 around town, go with 45 or 50, 40 to 45 miles per gallon for planning purposes. And, you know, with a small gas tank, and a lot of those scooters have smaller than the three-plus gallon that the Helix has, now you're talking about multiple stops for fuel on a 400-mile day. We had one or two days that were in that range. And so, you know, you're you're looking at two or three stops, and you've got to plan ahead for those. You know, do I have enough to get to the next place? Do I risk it? Is the gas station going to be open? We ran into a few of those kind of things where people thought, you know, the gas stations would be open and they were long since closed and boarded up. Oh, one other thing I found in doing this was that on pure gas at wide open throttle, I could gain five miles an hour. And so each night I would look for a station that sold pure gas. I had the pure gas app and would hunt around and fill it up with that. Five miles an hour is a lot. I mean, if you look at my winning margin of roughly 50 minutes, that's one minute per checkpoint. And a checkpoint there were four checkpoints every day on a 400-mile day. So that's one minute per 100 miles. Mm-hmm. That's the margin that we were running. Anything you can do to make a difference in that is going to make a big difference. Yeah. In these conversations, sometimes it feels very an emphasis on speed, but the old adage of, you know, it's not how fast you go, but how does it go? How fast you go? It's not how fast you go, but how slow you don't, or what the heck was that? <laughs> I'll tell you what, you can use a lot of time being lost. And <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
<laughs> the, the routes that are published are not always the most efficient routes. I think deliberately, if people were taking down gravel roads when there was a paved road that was a lot more efficient, a lot safer, a lot faster, I remember seeing guys come in just caked in dust. The one guy I had on like a black trench coat, and he he was tan. <laughs> <laughs> he had dust all over him because he'd followed somebody down that road and they just caked the dust on him and he'd been eating it for way too long. And you don't have to do that again. If you, you know, the last thing I would do is assume that the route guidance that is published is what I ought to take. I would always go checkpoint to checkpoint or, you know, bonus point, whatever on Google Maps and see if there's a better way. And I know Scott published the official route map on Garmin. He did all the work and a lot of people took it, but he's your competitor, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the route that you're, you're correct, the route that the, the event publishes or puts out is, is preferred or suggested. That is the route that and it's a rough draft. It's it'll not, get it'll get you there. <laughs> and by design, it's, it's created in Garmin's base camp. And it's not polluted with lots of via points that kind of shape it to, you know, a particular road. So it, it is a rough draft and you definitely, it is in your best interest in terms of just participation in the event from a competitive angle, whether you're riding as a tourist, quote unquote, or you're, you're looking to, you know, compete for a, you know, a top 10 or top three or even win the event. But you need to understand the route and the roads ahead and the selection, how your GPS is going to take you there and what that terrain entails, you know, you're responsible for your own safety. And so many people show up having no idea where we're going. They booked their hotels. They know where we're staying tonight, how they're getting there. They know there's some checkpoints and some bonus points. And we're going to take a picture of a rocket. And tonight we're going to eat, you know, at the steakhouse, but that's it. <laughs> the people who have never done it before, you know, they may go into it thinking this is a group ride. This is not a group ride. The last thing you want is somebody on your tail following you because <laughs> they're going to get the same points you get. And if they've got a older, smaller, faster scooter than you do, they're going to get more points than you do. Yeah. As, I, as I told the Helix guys, you know, hey, I, I'm going to ride with you guys because I'm always going to get more points than you are because <laughs> I've got an older scooter. Yep. But yeah, I, I can see, again, people just don't realize how much you have to prepare. I was up till midnight every night, downloading my maps, getting my routes. My support truck driver was in bed. I mean, he didn't get it. And unfortunately, when he rode the route in 2018, he didn't think that he had to do that. And he dropped his phone on the first day, broke it, and then he was lost. The only thing he could do is get from city to city thereafter. And so the only day he made all of his points was when I met him in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and rode with him over to the Blue Ridge Parkway. I, I forget where it was, a little bit east of the Smokies. And we had all the checkpoints. We had great time. He, he checked everything off. And then he continued to be lost on to was it Virginia City or something where you ended up. Yeah. From an event perspective, we're trying to maybe give a little more accurate guidance for 23 in terms of pointing out where there are dirt or unpaved opportunities. And some people very much enjoy that change up. And, you know, that's part of the event that they've, you know, that they've signed up for. But I think with the draft route that's in place, it's, it's kind of a break even. If you're efficient on, on dirt or gravel and that's your jam, then, you know, that way of getting to the next checkpoint or bonus is an option. If you're a little bit less efficient on dirt or, paved roads are the way that you like to get there, then, you know, there's that fork in the road for you. So we should have two or three days out West where you can pick your terrain on a few of the segments. You know, another thing that you have to consider is how fast is your scooter? As I was doing my nightly maps, I looked at the speed limit on the roads. And like you say, you get out West, the speed limit in a lot of the West is 80 miles an hour. Well, you can go 80 miles an hour on most of the scooters that we're running. And so you got to look at it and say, well, yeah, I could do 80 miles an hour on this route that's 15 miles longer, but I can't do 80 miles an hour. And so I've got to take the shorter route that the speed limit is 65, but at least I can do 65. And, you know, I'm not going to gain that extra time because I can't do the speed. Yep. And so there are a lot of choices. 
that analysis you have to do, and it's not always easy. You kind of have to do the, the math on the back of the napkin or an envelope when you're looking at like a Google streets and the routing options. Garmin allows you to get a little bit more specific with your average speeds on certain road types, but even that can be a little over analyzed, I think, and what it estimates or the road selection that the algorithm will come up with. If you're looking to be competitive in this event, understanding the route, your scooter's performance in terms of distance, but also through elevations, very important things to take into consideration. And your fuel strategy needs to be layered into that where gas is available or where you're going to fill up with your your ox tank or your jerry can, whatever, whatever that may be. But it's ho- hopefully for 23, we see some people taking a little bit more time on the the route, not blindly following the rough draft that the event puts out. Or, you know, if that's not your thing, there are plenty of people that are really into the mapping and the navigation part. You can team up with somebody and kind of lean on them for that. And maybe they're leaning on you for something else. But it's not it's not a group ride. It's very few people have gone, you know, coast to coast with riding with one other person versus multiple people. But it is nice. I'm sure you know. Well, you didn't stop for gas a whole lot, but you're always kind of within arm's reach of somebody. So it does sort of feel like a group ride in, in a sense. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of camaraderie in the parking lot and, you know, the people laughing at you from the diner when you're pulled over on the side of the road by the police. It's a great time. It's a group kind of event, but it's not a group ride. I met a lot of people that I consider friends. And, you know, again, Mike Smith and Chris, his son, and Frank, and I didn't mention Steve Hess. They rode from California, picked up Mike's son in Arkansas. He worked for Walmart down there, rode on down to Birmingham. And I just happened to be in Birmingham. I was, you know, like I say, I do computer stuff all over the U.S. And I was in Birmingham on Wednesday. And I was debating about staying over. I've always wanted to go to the Barber Museum. And if I stayed over till Thursday, I could go to the Barber Museum and then drive home. Or I could leave at, I think it was six or seven o'clock and drive home myself, knowing I was going to stop on the roadside somewhere and sleep for four hours. And I, I said, you know, I've got to leave Saturday to get down there for the, the start on Monday. And so I didn't stay. Well, I found out that Mike and Frank and Chris and, and Steve had stopped at the Barber Museum and parked their scooters out in the parking lot and went in and they're walking around looking at stuff like everybody else. There aren't many people there. And one of the docents came up to them and said, are you guys riding those scooters out there? And they said, yeah. And he said, you know, are you camping around here or, you know, what, you know, they said, no, we, we rode from California. We're riding across the country and we're going on the cannonball. And he, and he looked at him with kind of mouth hanging open for a second. And he goes, you guys need a better tour than this. And he found somebody, another docent, that gave them a tour of the mechanic shop. And, you know, the bikes are in storage. They went literally everywhere in that museum. Wow. And I kicked myself to this day for having come home to get things loaded up and prepped up to go when I could have had a tour like that. I, I just can't believe. But, you know, that's a part of the community, you know, the that bikers have, and especially scooter people have. And scooters are really coming into their own right now. Uh, you know, BMW's making scooters, for heaven's sake. They're expensive, but, <laughs> but they are. And there's some recognition of the fun that you have on a scooter that is different than you have on a Harley or on something bigger, you know, where um, there's a lot of my bike is better than your bike, my bike is faster than your bike. Nobody has that mindset when they're on a scooter. Everybody, you know, is just looking for the fun in life. And that's part of the fun that we have, my son and a bunch of his friends, as we take these scooter man trips, we call them, and just hang out. Everybody will come up and talk to us. And, you know, it's it's not, you know, mine's bigger than yours kind of thing. It's just, it's a whole different lifestyle, if you will, to be riding on scooters. Yes, it is. And we saw so much of that. We continue to see it every single year people coming out from the communities that we're overnighting in and joining the scene in the parking lot. And it's really widely embraced. It's not a scooter versus Harley or, you know, what, what do you ride? I ride this. It's, it's, it's a lot of just overall two wheel and three wheel in some cases, love going on out there. I can't believe the numbers that you're pulling in now on, on the ride. I mean, when I went, I think in, in 16, there were like 
around 45 registered and I think around 35 showed up. But what I heard the number last time was 75 or something. 75 showed up. We had 180-ish that had registered. The pandemic kind of spread that out a little bit. We were at 85 that registered pre-postponement. And a lot of those original kind of 2019 registrations with the intent of riding in 20, you know, are the ones that made it you know, to the starting line two years later with the delay. But yeah, I'm nervous for 2023. We announced on fate, we've been kind of announcing it in different places at different levels of detail just to get a feel for the interest out there. And we did the announcement earlier this week on Facebook and a few other places. And we've been overwhelmed with the number of people that have reached out, messaging the event through social media, and the number of people that have continued to sign up and express interest in, in a lot of great questions on the Riders Forum, which is, if you're interested in doing the event, that's that's the place to get your questions out there and, and get some feedback from people that have done it. I still monitor the forum. I, I don't post a lot, but every time I go out there, there's always a lot of activity. And this isn't even, you know, the people who are registering to ride. This is just the general, you know, open to the public kind of forums. But, you know, for 180 people riding, you know, stop and think there's going to be 175 of you that have a finishing position that is not particularly memorable. So go for the memories. Have a good time see the sites, look at the difference in vegetation and the farming and the landscape, you know, in the fruit trees, whatever you want to look at as you go across the country. It is it's a wonderful trip. I would like to go back and ride some of the routes that other cannonballs have ridden just to see the sites. You know, a lot of them go over Stevens Pass or a lot of them go over Bigfoot Mountain. You know, okay, that was memorable. That was fun. That was a lot of switchbacks. That was a lot of beauty, the color and all that kind of stuff. But man, there's, there's so much to see in this whole U.S. I don't feel the need to go to Europe at all until I've seen everything here. Yeah, that's great advice. And it's a beautiful country and there's no better way to see it, I think, than on a on a scooter, making your way across some some back roads you would probably never otherwise never find yourself on unless you're you're on a scooter and, and maybe doing this event and a little bit of the torture that, that might come along with it. But it's a it's a great view and a great experience with, with great people. Well, I thank all you guys for putting it together. That has to be so much work, and it's appreciated by so many people. Obviously, it's, it's working. Thanks. All right, Bob. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today, talking 2016. You're our first guest from a prior year. Everyone so far has been from 21. So hopefully more of you come out of the woodwork Send us an email, ride at scootercannibalrun.com, and we'd love to have you on. And that that's an open invitation to, if you're thinking about 23 and you have a list of questions, send us an email and we'll, we'll find a time to do a recording, maybe get another rider or two on here to help answer those questions. It'd be kind of interesting, but that's where we're at. And thanks again, Bob. It's been a, a pleasure to, to speak with you today and share some of those memories and thoughts about the Scooter Cannibal. Good, my pleasure again. And I thank all you guys for, for taking the initiative and keeping it going. Thanks. Thanks.